0: All right, so God is keeping his promise to King David. And so now we pick up in chapter 9, verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. The words will be on the screen. Let's read this first verse together, kind of figure out what's going on as we pick up the story. It says, and David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? All right, so let's pause right there. So here's what's going on. King David is sitting on his throne, and he he recounts back and says, I wonder if there's anyone left in the house of Saul. So who was Saul, right? He was the first king that God had had raised up. He did not follow the path of the Lord. And we saw last week, or two weeks ago rather, that because Saul did not walk in God's ways, that he removed the blessing from his family and gave that to the family of David, right? But but David is kind of doing this weird thing and says, Is there anyone left at the house of Saul? For whatever reason, we're seeing this unfold here, that he's remembering that other house, the other lineage, the the people of Saul. But he asked a weird question that if you didn't read the story, or maybe you don't really piece that together, we're kind of jumping in the middle. He asked a weird question. He says, is there still anyone left? So why is he asking that? Well, in 1 Samuel 31, we won't read it for the sake of time, verses 1 through 6, we recount the story that Saul... um, went into battle with his son Jonathan. You guys remember Jonathan was a good friend of David? They were best friends. Saul and Jonathan fighting his father and son in war, and the Philistines killed them. It was a tragic uh, battle there, so the whole kingdom dissolved. Saul and Jonathan were destroyed with all of the two other brothers as well. Just wiped out. Wiped out. Uh, Everything in the king's court changed as a result. King Saul was killed in battle with all three, three of his sons. But let's pick back up in 2 Samuel 9 and verse 2 and keep reading. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. Ziba was just pretty much the property manager. So Saul had died and he had all of this property and all of this estate and all of this, this stuff. And Ziba's kind of the, the manager that's keeping everything uh, going in Saul's absence. And they called him to David. So David brings Ziba before him. So imagine that it's in the throne room. David's sitting on his throne. Here comes Ziba from the, the really the enemy king, the foreign king here now, bringing him into this presence. And then the king asked him and said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? So he asked him the same question. And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. All right, just stop reading right there. So he basically says, that, yeah, that all of his sons were killed, but man, he's got one. He's got one kid, uh, and he has these issues uh, in his feet. So we want to know what, why is he crippled, and what's that the big deal about that? Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, the words will be on the screen. Let's look at what happened. So the context in, in 2 Samuel 4 is uh, in light of, His daddy being killed. The king is killed. His brothers are killed. Here's what's happening in verse 4 of that. It recounts it again for us. It says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. Notice, he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. The news that they had been killed in battle. Okay? And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So here we go. We pick up the story and we see this character named Mephibosheth. And it's a very hard name to say, okay? So I'm going to mess that up all the next 30 minutes. But bear with me. We'll call him Phoebe, all right? All right. Um, Mephibosheth, I can't do that. take myself seriously. Um, so here's what's going on in Mephibosheth's life. He Went from being a son to the king. Okay? Son to the king to getting news as a five-year-old little boy that his father and all of his brothers were killed. I mean, we read these stories, but like, put yourself in that shoes. I mean, this five-year-old little boy that was orphaned just in a matter of seconds. His world fell apart. Everything changed for Mephibosheth. He lost his entire family. And then as they were fleeing the city because, you know, if the Philistines had, had killed the king, man, they're going to come in and capture the city, and so they're fleeing out. So his caretaker grabs him, and, and as they're hurrying out of the city, think about that. If we got news that man, we've been we've been bombed by by terrorist groups, and we would make our way out. And it's no longer peacetime anymore. And we're just hurrying out. Think about the turmoil of that. Put yourself in the story. And Mephibosheth, as he's running out, his little five year old boy, he falls and breaks both of his ankles, both of his feet. Now that's a bad day it 's a kind of an accident that happened because they 're running for their lives literally, but because they didn't have proper medical care, guess what he lived the rest of his life crippled that's just a bad turn of events when you say we look at that and say man that 's just not fair like he he went from being the king's son, to losing everything, running for their life from the kingdom, and then in an accident, they fall and has pain and agony. Because they're refugees, they can't even provide fix for his legs, and he lived the rest of his life um, disabled. And then he was living with, we read on in chapter 4, we won't do it for the sake of time, but the last of his family, his uncle, was murdered. So then his caretaker, the people that that kind of came in to help him, was then killed. This kid has gone through it. And then he's living as a refugee in Lodabar. And Lodabar, you know what it means in Hebrew? Nothing. Like it literally means the word nothing. And so it's almost this picture that he's living in just sheer just nothingness. Just existing. And and get this, here's probably the, the most hard thing to kind of grasp with this is because of his disability kings in that day were supposed to be seen as strong and mighty and valiant and warriors and because of his disability he was looked over to the throne so he was Saul had a son a grandson Jonathan he was probably the rightful heir but because of his disability he was looked over so I want you to get this picture so that's kind of the background of this guy we don't know how old Mephibosheth is at this story in chapter 9 but then King David who has really taken your father's place and he's on the throne, calls you in before the king. So you've lived in nothingness. This has been your life, I mean, just hurting. That's been true for so many people in this room. I just want to take a pause button right there. So many of you have lived your life and you're just um, saying, maybe not those situations, but my life has been one thing after another, after another, after another, and going, really? Can I catch a break? I mean, is this really what's going to go on with my life? So many of us, that's true of this morning, but I want you to see, put yourself in the shoes so he's living in exile, and then the king wants to see him. All right. Let's keep reading in verse four. It says, The king said to him, Where is he? This is Ziba talking about Mephibosheth. And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Mature, the son of Emil at Lodabar. The king David sent and brought him from the house of Mature, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, notice came to David and fell on his face and he paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth answered, Behold, I am your servant. And then the next part of, of verse 7 kind of lets us know the posture of Mephibosheth's heart. that He's absolutely terrified because King David says to him in the first part of verse 7, he says, Do not fear. So why would Mephibosheth be afraid in this moment? I mean, you think about it. He was the next in line to be king until the series of events happened. And so in Mephibosheth's mind, it's going, he could be killing me. Like he's bringing me into the court to put me to death because I might be the closest thing to kind of uh, competition to the throne, if you will. Like what if Mephibosheth were to rise up and try to take my throne? That's probably what's going on in his life because that's what kings would do in that day. They had their power, man. They're going to guard their throne. And so he, I want you to get this picture. This little orphan boy, he's been crippled all his life, no family, living in nothingness, is standing and kneeling before the king, the most powerful man in the known world. And he's terrified, absolutely terrified. That's where we see. But I, I want us to just see the beautiful picture of the gospel here. Listen, he expected death, but he experienced delight. While he's sitting there trembling under the king, he received the delight of the king. Let's keep reading in verse 7. And David said to him, do not fear. Why? For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, notice his response, I love it. He knew what he was worthy of. He knew the condition of his heart. And he says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? So we see some things that David promises him, and we'll move on, make some application to our lives, okay? First, he says, I will show kindness to you. What is says? right? Right out of the text. I'm going to show you kindness. Do not fear. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to give you what you expect. I'm going to show you kindness. That word kindness is the same word he used in verse 1 and verse 3 when he says, Is there anyone in the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? He said, Okay, Derek, that's cool. But look at this. The word kindness is one of the most rich, beautiful words in all of the Old Testament. I'm going to geek out with you for a second, okay? So I usually don't do this from the pulpit, but it's just so good to not do it. It's the Hebrew word hased. So I want us to know that. It's hased It, it, it carries with it the idea of loyal, loyal love. It's not just love. It's not just, okay, I'm not going to kill you. It's not what it is. It's not just, okay, I'm going to give you some blessings and help you out a little bit in your life. It's not that. It is that. But it's so much richer. It is one of the most richest words in all of the Bible. It's used over 245 times, and it's this idea of loyal love. It's the faithfulness. It's a commitment. It's sacrificial. It's a love that doesn't run out. And you think about that. He's, everybody in his life has either failed him or left him or a series of events, and he's got the most powerful man in the universe looking at him and saying, I'm going to show you loyal love. I'm going to show you a said Kindness that does not leave, that does not give up on you, that's just so lavish that it's almost too good to be true. I'm gonna show you that. But just just stunned by this. And what I want to talk about is why? Why did he do this? And I want to say first that God has revealed himself throughout Scripture. And I wish we had time just to go through the Bible and show you all the times where this word has said is used to describe God or how God uses that word to describe himself. And I want to give you just one. It's one of my most favorite passages in all of Scripture Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The words will be on the screen. It says, The Lord passed before him. This hymn here is Moses. You guys remember when Moses said, Show me your glory? And he hid him in the rock, and he let his hinder parts pass by, and he got to see the glory of God. This is God's, one of his first, listen guys, hang with me, one of the first times God has revealed himself in Scripture. He's showing aspects of who he is, and here's what God says about himself. So listen, I don't, I don't know what you think about God. I don't know what you grew up thinking who God is, but I want you to see how God reveals himself to you right here. It's just gorgeous. Exodus 34, verse 6. As the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord. That's Yahweh there. That's the personal name of God. The Lord. A God merciful, merciful, does not give us what we deserve. Can we praise him for that this morning? And he's gracious. He's gracious. Meaning, he gives us things that we could never deserve. That's who God is for you today. For me, he's slow to anger. How many of you ever felt like God's just mad? He's just waiting to just get you. And The Bible says he's slow to anger. And he's, notice, notice the word, abounding. This is not just that he has what we're about to say. It's a surplus. It's overflowing. It's abounding like a river that knows no boundaries and just washes over everything, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That word, you know what it is? It's hesed. Same word. God said, I am abounding in hesed toward you, in steadfast love. And most translations translate that word, that word said in that steadfast love. He goes on and says, keeping, keeping that steadfast love for thousands. So not just that I, ha- that I am this in my essence, but I choose to show this to a multitude of people who do not deserve it. And he says, I'm forgiving iniquity. The, this said of God comes to us and instead of giving us wrath that we deserve for our sin against him, says, I forgive you. I forgive you. All of your wrongs, all the things you've walked away from, I forgive you. But who will by no means clear the guilty? That He's going to not for, going to forgive us just by sweeping the sins under the rug. He can't clear the guilty because he's righteous, he's holy. But this is just who God is. He, so David knew that about God. God revealed himself that way. And so many Psalms that King David has penned, Uses that word, has said the steadfast love, the steadfast love of the Lord. The Lord is faithful. So listen, David had, had seen God to be faithful. He had experienced the said of God. Because in 2 Samuel 7, we talked about this two weeks ago, back to the Davidic covenant. I want to read this to you again. I want to see how you, see how all the scripture ties together. So, of the offspring of David. Notice what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. The words will be on the screen. It says, I will be to him of the offspring of David, a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Notice verse 15. But my steadfast love, my said, will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul. Which I, whom I put away from before you. So I want, us to, I want us to get, I'm taking a lot of time with this, but I want us to understand, because we're not going to appreciate where we're going if you don't get this. David had seen that God is a God of loyal love. He just is. He is a God of love toward you and me. He'd experienced that. But then, specifically in the promise, he had experienced that love. He says, That loyal God, loving God, looked at David and said, I promise to see you. My steadfast love will not depart from you, and it will not depart from your descendants forever. What a promise. What a promise. But remember our context. David's sitting on his throne, and Mephibosheth is now kneeling down before this king, fearful. And then David says, fear not, for I will show you a set. He experienced the love of God himself, and he had to extend the love of God. He had to. It was just a response to him. No one had to tell him to do it. It was just an overflow. If that is true, then I'll show you Hassan. I'll show you kindness. But notice who this guy is. Don't forget, Mephibosheth is from the house of Saul. And the promise we just read in chapter 7 said, I'm not going to give it to Saul anymore. Do You guys remember that? I'm taking the steadfast love from Saul's house because of their disobedience and I'm giving it to you. And now David is going, I'm going to willfully go back to the house of Saul and I'm going to pull this guy in and show kindness to him, to show love to him. This is not something David has to do. And a matter of fact, some of his entourage or whatever, the, the, the people of that day may have looked at that and said, what are you doing? Do you know the threat that he could be? Do you know what's going on here? Why are you doing this? But he had experienced the loving faithfulness of God, and he had to extend the loving faithfulness of God. He goes on, well, these two next two will be a lot quicker than that. He says, I will restore you. So basically, all of the, the inheritance of your, of, your grand, grand, of your grandfather, Saul, I'm going to give to you. I'm restoring to you the land. he was living as a refugee. Remember that? He wasn't living in in his grandfather's house. He said, I'm going to restore to you all the things that you've lost. And then he goes on and says, I will receive you. I want to read this over us again. Verse 7b says, and you shall eat at my table always. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. This orphan had no place, is now sitting at the table of the king as his son. Skip down to verse 12, it says, And Mephibosheth had a young son, whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. Look at that turn of event. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, notice, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his, of his feet. This picture of this man, no doubt, probably being carried in to the presence of the king, was expecting death, and he experienced the delight of the king. I'm going to show you kindness. I'm going to restore to you the things that you don't even really deserve, and I'm going to let you come into my house and sit at my table with my boys. You're going to be like a son to me. And get this, it still says that he was lame in both of his feet, but I think the reason that it's repeated is... That was still true of him, but notice when he was sitting at the king's table, his brokenness couldn't be seen. He was just like everybody else. He was adopted into the family of the king. What a beautiful picture. Carried to the place that he doesn't belong to be included in a family that's not his own. That's what's happening to this guy. So when at the table, his brokenness that once kept him out. Get this. The thing that kept him out of the kingdom, because he wasn't good enough, is now covered when he's sitting at the table of the king who showed him kindness. Do you see it? You guys know where I'm going with this, don't you? Like, it's, it's there. It's Jesus right here. Guys, get this. We are Mephibosheth. That's us. That's us. That, that, this is a story. It's, it's a picture. This is a guy that really happened. This is not some just illustration that's kind of cool. This actually happened, but God's preserved this for us to show us something about who we are and about who he is. And he says, we were broken. We were empty. We were outcast. And listen, we were enemies of the king. It's who you were and it's who I was. And listen, if you're here apart from the king, apart from Christ, that's who you are today. And I say that with every ounce of love for you that I possibly can. if you do not know Jesus, then you're still here, still outside of the king's table get this our brokenness is much deeper than a physical abnormality it's a brokenness of everything of who we are you know why because we rebelled against the king you know that we talk about this all the time but our brokenness is much more than just some i can't walk kind of thing it's a very much to the point of everything inside of us that we are completely incapable to go to the king on our own completely Every ounce of righteousness that you, we think that we have, the Bible says it is filthy rags. We have nothing to offer. We come empty-handed. The only thing that we bring to salvation, to the table, is our sin. That's it. We're completely broken. Listen, we had no rightful access to the king's inheritance. Because of our rebellion, we were cast out to live in nothingness for the rest of our lives. There's no access to inheritance. There's no reason we should ever have that. Then. You are summoned by the king to come into his presence. Come into his presence. And and I want you to see it. I hope that we don't, you put yourself as a guilty sinner in the presence of the king Jesus, of the Lord Almighty. And and I hope our response would be fear. Because that's the right response. In our sin, he should punish us. In our brokenness, he should never look toward us at all we should be fearful but i want you to see then the king listen just as david says fear not for i will show you kindness for the sake of saul or or for the sake of jonathan he just said that the king speaks over us listen so beautiful fear not do not fear you know why because i will show you kindness for the sake of jesus I'm going to show you a set. I'm going to show you faithful love. I'm going to bring you in. So, just really quickly. When we experienced death, when we expected death, rather, we experienced His delight. I want to read this passage over. So I love it. We read it here all the time. But Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, broken, no thing to offer God, at the right time, Christ, died for those who are kind of good you know what it says for those for the ungodly for one will scarcely die for a righteous person so it's kind of hard to give your life up for somebody that's a good even if they're a good person it's hard to die for them right like it's taking a big big sacrifice on your part though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die you may do that if in the right situation. Some I mean, of you husbands would maybe die for your wife or kids to protect them that, that's possible But verse 8 says this, turns our conception of God and ourselves on its head and says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us instead of us, in the place of us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood much more, shall we be saved by him, by Jesus. Not by our works, not by anything else, but by him. From the wrath of God. For we—if we, if while we were enemies. Do you believe that? We were enemies of God. A lot worse than Mephibosheth ever thought about being. We were reconciled to God. Brought near. You were far from him. Couldn't walk on your own. And he brings you near to reconcile you. An enemy to reconcile as friends and as sons and daughters. By the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Church, listen, the gospel will never mean anything to us. and It will never compel us to live a life worthy of the gospel. Listen, if we don't understand what's going on in Romans chapter 5, because so many, I hear it on, I, God bless them, but Christian radio, okay? If you listen to Christian radio, it's okay. I, mean, I don't hate you. But some of these songs, it's like, you know, Jesus just loves me so much, and I must have been so special for him to die for me. You know, and, and at one level, that's true, that he does love you, and he went toward you, and he showed you grace. But guys, get this. It wasn't because God needed you, and he didn't need me. It wasn't because there's was anything in you or me that was lovely at all. It was, we weren't good people. Like, while we were still weak at the right, time, at the right time, Christ died for us. And some people might die for righteous people, but listen, we weren't righteous. It would make sense if what Christ did on the cross was, and hey, we're kind of good people. We need His help," you know, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is, "Listen, you deserve His wrath, and we have nothing. There's nothing in us to cause God to love us, but yet He still does, and He still died. He took your place. It's almost too good to be true. It's scandalous. It's hesseded. It's loyal love beyond our." wildest imagination. That's why we sing this song. It's like, oh, what an amazing love I see. And it's a, it's a mystery that your grace would come from me. Have you ever gotten to that place where you saw yourself not just kind of a good person that you need God and God's kind of a, a commodity to your life, but no, no, no. You had nothing and you deserve His wrath, but He gives you everything. And He says, do not fear because I'll show you kindness, love, Not for your sake, but for the sake of my son. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So the gospel, listen, is not a display of our worthiness. Don't look at the cross and be like, man, look how awesome I am. Look at the cross is a display of his worthiness. It's that this glorious God would choose to humble himself, become our sin, so that we could have his righteousness. It's almost too good. To be true. And in that way, it does lift us up, doesn't it? It's kind of weird to say, you're nothing, but it makes us feel like that, that's what our soul's designed for. Like, we're not the point, but yet he's showed us his affection. It's just amazing. And listen, the gospel is more. If you, I don't know if you've if you're heard this for the, really for the first time, but listen, it's more than just God looking at you and saying, your sins are forgiven. Because that's really good news, right? I mean, for this God to do that, but he, do, he goes beyond that. And he says, not just that your sins are forgiven, but just as we saw illustrated in Mephibosheth, I'm gonna restore you to an inheritance. Everything that I have is yours. And then guess what? You get to you get to come in and eat at my table. You get to be my boy. You know, you get to sit around my son. There's no difference. And when you're at the table, I don't see your your abnormality. I don't see your weakness. I don't see the thing that's defined you your whole life. I don't see that anymore because I see you through the lens of a set, through the lens of love, not what you deserve. And you're my son and you're my daughter. That's why Paul could write to the church at Galatia and then by proxy for us at the church at Johnson City today and say, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Born of a woman, born under the law. You see that? That Christ has humbled himself to become like us so that he could save us. To redeem those who were under the law. To buy you back. So that, why? So that you could just try to exist through life. So that you could just get to heaven one day when you die. Just so you can say, oh, my past sins are forgiven. That's not what it says. It says, we, he did that for us. So that we might receive adoption. You see it? Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Daddy, relationship with this God. So, listen, somebody needs to hear this today. And if you don't hear anything else I say, listen to the Word of God over you. Verse 7, it says, so you are no longer a slave. It's not who you are anymore. You're not Mephibosheth down there kneeling for your life. Like, that's not you anymore. Not because you somehow became religious and started trying hard. Or not because you started not doing some bad things. No, no, no. You are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. The inheritance is given to you. He's restored to you everything that your sin has cost you. And he's brought you into his family. That's what he's done as a gift to us. And so he says, you will eat at my table always. All right. In closing, which means nothing. Okay. If that's true, church, listen. You and I have experienced the chesed of God, the love of God, the steadfast life. You've experienced it. And if you're here today, you're saying, no, not me. Because right, be honest with you, I don't have time for this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because it's such a powerful moment. I was at a pastor's conference uh, this weekend. Um, and this guy comes up to me during one of our breaks, and just an older gentleman. And he says, man, can I just be honest with you? And I know you don't know me, and I don't know you, but I just sense I need to do this. He just broke down on me. This guy's a pastor, okay. Um, and he said, I just don't really believe that God loves me. Like, like I, I, I know it to be true. And, like, I would believe that God loves you, but I just don't know if he loves me. I've struggled so much with past sin. He just verbally vomited all over me. I'm like, okay, I, I'm a mess too, okay? Let's do this. And we just had a cry fest out in front of this church. And, and he just said, and he said, man, I've just struggled with this, I've struggled with this. And I just, I just have doubt. And I, I struggle with, have I lost my salvation? And he just, he just, just. Oh, just so broken. At a pastor's conference, we're having this moment while dude's preaching in there, you know? And I said, man, it it is. It's almost too good to be true, isn't it? Like, it, it does cause us to doubt. Like, really, I know the depths of my heart. I know who I am. See, you see the pastor on stage with a shirt tucked in, waving the Bible around, but I know the real Derek. And I know my doubts. And I know my inadequacies. I know all that I'm not. And sometimes I look and say, okay, yeah, I know. I'm preaching that God loves you all the time. But does he love me? Does he really? Can he love you? Not just because he has to. But listen, do you believe God likes you? Do you believe he delights in you? That he is just, just, if not to be sacrilegious, but almost giddy to be with you? Do you believe that? that you're not a drudgery to him, he delights to hear from you, he wants you, do you believe that about God? Because that's who he is, his love for you, He said he couldn't love me, you don't know what I've done, you don't know where I've been, and as a pastor, you don't know how I'm still messing up, this guy was saying, and we just walked through the gospel again, like, do you believe that what Christ did 2,000 years ago, see, listen, I don't know that I'm saved, and you can't know you're saved because of a moment in time where you prayed a prayer, I mean, there's a moment like that, that's we need those moments where we repent and believe. But listen, you know how I know I'm saved? It's because of what happened 2,000 years ago. Not what happened to me in a moment, but what happened 2,000 years ago. That if Christ took my place and rose again and says, if you will repent and believe in me, you can not just be forgiven and made alive, but get this, adopted as my kid. And not... And some of you, if you don't have fathers or a good family life, maybe that's skewed to you. But listen, He's not just a reflection of our earthly parents, but He is the perfection of our earthly parents. And He is the God. He's your Father. and So don't let your past hurts skew your view of God. He delights in you today. Now listen, I said I was closing. I didn't go where I was going to (sighs) go. Listen, if that's true, Number one, I just feel like I need a. I'm not going to go on. Somebody needs to hear this again. God delights in you. He loves you. He's done everything necessary for you to know Him. Don't rebel against it. Don't be so arrogant to think that your inadequacies are going to keep you from Him. Because we're sin abounded. We just read it in Romans five. We're sin abounded. Finish it. Grace did much more about. It. So don't let what you're not keep you from being who God made you to be and have joy in Him. Believe that if He said it, it's true. Not because I'm worthy. I'm not. But because He is. All right, now I'm going to move on. If that's true, if we have experienced the Hasid of God, then we must, we must extend the Hasid of God. We must just like David, had experienced that about God and showed this to Mephibosheth. So we are Mephibosheth, right? But what I'm asking is for God to show us our Mephibosheth. For you to be forgiven much means for you to forgive much. And if we had time, we'd read it. But Luke chapter 6, basically Jesus himself says, don't love those who can love you back. Don't just love those who can give things to you. Love those who can't repay you. That you don't get anything back from? And get this, love those who hate you. Love your enemies. And he says, why? In verse 36 of Luke chapter 6, it says, Be merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. And it's all throughout the scripture. We love God because he first loved us. And if, and if you love God, then you ought also to love one another. It's this picture. Like, if God has done this for you in the gospel, if this is true, it's scandalous. Number one, we should be jumping up and down over Jesus. I don't know why we're just sitting there with our hands in our pockets singing these songs. Jesus is everything. Look what he's done for you. But then that means, listen, it's not just about me and Jesus. It's not just a love fest with Daddy God. You know, like, I see that so much. Like, me and Jesus are cool, but... I don't really have anything to do with, a, with the church. I don't want anything to do with the people that are different than me. I sure am not going to cross cultures, and I'm sure not going to go to the place that may cost me my life or may get me uncomfortable or my kids may have to hear some cuss words or I'm not going to do any of that because, I mean, mm, we Christians, we got to stay separate. And if, if the love of God is true, it must move toward out of us into the lives of other people. That's why it says, while we say we're the hands and feet of God, See, because we don't love with a natural love. Because it's natural to love people like us. It's natural to love people that are easy, right? It's not natural to love people that cost us stuff and that gets uncomfortable. It's not natural, is it? It's not. So that's why we need supernatural love. And we need the love of God to flow through us. So when, just as much as when we're loving, it's as if God is loving. As we're serving, it's as if God is serving people. Because this world cannot see our God. He's not here. You know what? They, they can see us. Is your life reflecting the love of God that you've been shown? Is it? In everyday, everyday moments, are you reflecting the love of God? Do good, though, do good for those who cannot benefit you, and do good for those who can harm you. Listen, every person is created in the image of God and has value. Right? Every person has value. But guess what? Because everybody's a sinner, every person is broken, messed up. They're Mephibosheths. And and listen, we do not say we're better than them. Let's swoop in to, to help. No, no, no. We're on their level, and we've already experienced the king saying to us, do not fear, for I'll show you kindness. So we just go and say, hey, I want to point you to the king who showed me such love and grace. I want you to meet him. That's what we do as Christians. We don't go in swooping in like the heroes with our capes flapping in the wind. We go in as humble servants saying, I've experienced the love of God and I want to show you the love of God and the way I live my life and the way I serve you. But get this, we also with our mouths point people to Jesus and say, I want you to know this king. I want you to know this king. So Lord, show us our Mephibosheth. And get this guys, the church, the church has an opportunity to go into the spaces that no one else is willing to go to. And how dare we sit back in our nice buildings, and our comfortable little circles, and never step out into the lives of other people and get messy. What if Christ would have done that with us? Said, I'm not going to enter into their world, I'm not going to come be like them. That was an inconvenience for God, okay, like to become a human. Philippians 2 said he humbled himself, and he put skin on and he walked with it. he cried our tears he hurt our hurts he walked our streets and he died our death so that we could know him but then we could model that to the world around us that's what we're called to do and so we have a team here called our local global outreach i don't know what we call it. Tim. what do we call it? go local something we have a team i don't know what it's called but tim leads it and um, <coughs> that's all well, i don't lead it i guess uh Tim is our local missions pastor at this church. If you guys don't know Tim Kitts, I want you guys to get to know him. Uh, and he oversees both of our campuses and what what it looks like for us to love our city. Guys, do you know why we're in this room right now and not back in gray? It's for the city. It's not because this is easier. It's not. We're here to love our city. If you're here from this city, we, we're for you. And we we want to cross boundaries and go to where we're not naturally going. Because it was not, Christ went out of his way for us. So we go where we're not going. And I don't know if you know all that we do here at this church locally, but it's a lot. God's blessed us. We don't do that to, for our glory and for our name, but it's for His glory. And I want you to get informed of what we do. Go talk to Tim after uh, the service. There's so many things that we're about because we want to show compassion. We want to show mercy. We want to serve our city well. But I want to show three things uh, here on Mother's Day, real quick, run through. Uh, number one is adoption. Uh, we have a heart to come alongside uh, families in crisis. So this is one of three main focus areas for us as a church. Uh, so we're not saying that if you don't do this, you don't love Jesus. But for us as a faith family, we feel pre- compelled by God to join in with the orphan and the single moms and the families in crisis. And so what that looks like for us, number one, is foster care. There's so many families in our church that are going through foster care right now. I don't know if you know this. Right now, 200 children in Washington County are in up in foster care system right now, 200. There will be a training on June 1st at the Gray Campus to where, if you're interested in that, you can take the necessary training to be a foster parent and at our church and go through the classes here up next month. Foster care. But then there's adoption. To move from foster care to be a semi-permanent dwelling for a kid to actually say, I'm going to, kind of almost the picture that we see in Mephibosheth, I'm going to take them into my family. I'm going to show them grace. I'm going to make them my own because Christ has made me his own. And I'm going to enter into their suffering as Christ entered into my suffering. Get this. In the world today, there's 150 million orphans. 150 million. Put that in perspective, you know what the population of Russia is today? 141 million. Orphans all around the world, no parents. That we could enter into their suffering, both internationally and here domestically, right here in our city. There's kids waiting for this. Every day, 5,760 children become orphans. I mean, that's just staggering. What if we as a church, that's not the only way, but that could be a way that we enter in. Maybe that's some of you. It's not all of you, but maybe it's some of you. You say, well, Derek, I couldn't be a foster parent, and I I sure couldn't adopt. We're just not in the stage of life that way. Is there anything else for me to enter in and walk alongside families in crisis? And so we want to introduce to you a new partnership we have with Bethany Christian Services. They've been a partner for us for a couple years now. Uh, but they have this organization called Safe Families for Children. It's kind of a, a, an introductory point to foster care and adoption. So I want you to turn your attention to the screen um, and listen to this as the band comes on up. 2000